Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. I'm Jeff Kopsetta. I'm going to be hosting the show tonight because our friend Don has contracted a strange and extreme case of cooties from his main squeeze so we'll be flying tonight and with me is my wingman the world's greatest storyteller <laughs> author historian and ladies he's got one of the best beards grown by man my friend dennis blocker how you doing tonight dennis doing great, Jeff. Doing great. <laughs> thanks yeah. for thanks for being my wingman tonight man um we got a lot to talk about this is gonna be a, this is gonna be a, a cool show a new show um, yeah, we're going to do our best to fill in for, for Don and Henry not being here, and we wish Don the best as he's uh, recovering. But, um, Dennis, you know, we're going to talk uh, we're talk some flying tigers. We haven't really talked about that much on the show here lately. We want to talk books. We're going to talk movies like we usually do. And, um, you know, we typically hear what's the scuttlebutt. We're always peering into the past, right, as World War II historians or living historians. It's what we do. Uh, but you had a great idea to maybe peer into the future a little bit. And that hard conversation that none of us really want to have, but we know we have to have. And that's going to be how are we going to cope uh, in the world after all the World War II vets are gone. But Dennis, first, um, if you could, for some of our listeners who maybe haven't seen some of the shows when you've joined us, uh, if you could give us a little bit of a backstory, uh, what you've done, what you're doing, and how that led to you being uh, with me tonight. Sure. Um, military kid, grew up all over the world. My dad was an Air Force cop. Uh, and being in the military your whole life, growing up into it, you move every two years. Uh, lived in Iceland, Guam. Uh, being a military kid, you the military is a very important part of your life, of course. You know, I grew up, I knew all the American jets. I knew all the Russian jets. Uh, I knew everything Navy, yeah, just you name it. We just all of us DOD kids were just, you know, infatuated with it. And uh, we would have these big slug fests outside between whose dad was tougher. And uh, it was it was a good time. But, you know, what that did was growing up in the military family, especially in Iceland, is where I really grew my love for World War Two history was living in Iceland because the base had two channels. And uh, one of the channels always featured World War Two movies. And that's where I fell in love with the history of World War II, uh, seeing Von Ryan's Express, The Longest Day, um, you know, those movies just just seared into my head, Red Ball Express. Um, so, you know, then to find out that my grandfather's and great-grandfather was in World War II, uh, you know, that was life-changing and set me on a course that I was going to do all I could to learn about it. And then, lo and behold, uh, my grandfather uh, killed himself uh, after grandma died. And that led to my mom asking me, I want you to find out what happened to daddy during the war. So that led me uh, on a journey to find out. Um, and I, clues here, little nuggets there led me to find out that he was on a landing craft gunboat in the Pacific and was involved with the frogmen, the UDTs, who were now we call the Navy SEALs. And uh, he was in the invasions of Saipan, Guam, Tinian, and Iwo Jima and uh, discovered all that. And during all of those interviews, uh, I, that led me to find his shipmates. And then that led me to be curious to what happened to the gunboats beside my grandfather at Iwo Jima, the 450, the 441, the 438, the 346, 348, the 
471 to 473, 474, which was sunk. It still rests on the bottom off of Iwo Jima in the 627. Um, so that meant that I had to go find those crews. And that, well, you can't get in with the gunboats without discovering who was covering them. Well, that was the destroyers. So I got to find the guys from the Twigs and the Lutz and the Hall. And then, well, who was covering those guys? Well, the Pensacola. And then who was covering them? Well, the Tennessee and the Nevada and the Texas. So, you know, the next thing you know, I've interviewed 300 guys and I've crisscrossed the country. And actually, Adam Makos and myself probably blew by each other on the highways a couple times crisscrossing the country interviewing people uh, but uh you know that led to the publication of the book the heart of hell which i approached a pulitzer prize winning author mitch weiss uh, he wrote this tremendous book i got to write the japanese chapters that got me my foot into the uh, world of writing and he taught me a lot which i'm forever indebted to him and then that led to my uh, writing and research further into world war ii but also into my dad's history of uh, his time in Iraq and Afghanistan with K-9 and uh, locking down security in Baghdad and on a special ops base in the middle of the mountains of Afghanistan. And then that led to, well, maybe I should talk about my battles with PTSD working in emergency medicine for 23 years. And then that led to the book called The Clear. So uh, I've got about six or seven books that are currently in different stages. Um, most of them are World War II. I've got one about Africa, my time in Africa that'll be coming out. And then I have one that just needs to be published. It's about the suicide cliffs at Saipan. So that kind of brings us up to up to speed. Yeah, and that's, a, that's such an interesting story because when I think about, you know, your grandfather and, and what he did and, and how many other cases there were of that where children, grandchildren probably had no idea. And, you know, without you... Uh, doing what you did to keep that history alive, to keep his story, not only his, but his shipmates as well, right? I mean, that's just, that's incredible. And I remember, you know, growing up as a kid, there was a uh, a Marine uh, vet right down the road. I used to walk past his house, you know, every day walking to the middle school. And um, I remember him telling me that, you know, if you asked my kids, um, they could tell you I was a Marine in World War II. You know, that, that was it. Um, so, and I think that really is the case with a lot of World War II vets. The greatest generation, I think, tended to be more of a silent generation. It was like Absolutely. after they passed, you open up the trunk in the attic and find a Navy cross. Whoa, what did Grandpa do? And it's too late now to ask him anything. Um, and we don't all have your talents and, and resources to do that kind of research. And we're you know so thankful you did. And really looking forward to some of your other your books coming out you know I, I know i've got to read some of your samples and it's really exciting um so you know some of these little niches in history and, and here what's the scuttlebutt we try to cover everything right and there's just man there's so much right there's so much to world war ii um so i thought i just recently read a book that i'll talk about here in a little bit just recently watched a movie about the same subject and i kind of wanted to get your take dennis and and, um, you know, maybe uh, give the listener something new. I just wanted to talk about the Flying Tigers. Because here's the thing. <laughs> this is what I knew about the Flying Tigers 10 days ago. Um, they flew P-40s. <laughs> they had shark smiles on them. Did a lot of stuff for the Chinese. Tex Hill. <laughs> yeah. It's embarrassing how little I knew. 
about the flying tigers and um you know i just happened to i i finished the book i was reading i come over to the bookcase and i have four or five books i guess on the flying tigers or you know tex hill's autobiography and some other uh, diaries from flying tiger vets and i just pulled one off just called flying tigers and i read it in four or five days i just couldn't put it down i was just enthralled by i mean i guess i thought it was this huge group of individuals and I think it was something like 85 pilots initially that went over there or something like that. I mean, it was something so small. Uh, I was just shocked at the tactics and, and, and what Chenault did and how he trained those guys to, uh, you know, even though they had an inferior aircraft in the P-40 and some of their newer fighters, you know, Japanese fighters were far superior in a lot of different ways. He figured out their weaknesses and figured out how to train his guys specifically to these particular tactics that would have only worked then with those types of aircraft in those situations and was very successful at it. And I think at the start of the war, Chenault had over 40 confirmed kills. And when I say the start of the war, I mean America's involvement after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, He already had 40-some confirmed kills, probably more that weren't confirmed. So it just sucked me right in. And uh, so I'd like to hear the title. What was the title of that book? It was just flying T- the flying tigers. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'll cover it. Like I said, a little bit uh, later in, in our, in our, what you're reading um, segment, but I, I was just like, this would, this is the perfect book <laughs> for if you don't know anything, if you're like me, I never paid attention to the flying tigers. It was, it was just great. So I wanted to hear kind of, you know, your take on it. Um, just, I had no idea how, perilous i guess the situation was for china um and the importance of the burma road mm-hmm. uh just just the from from a tactical standpoint uh, from a strategic standpoint cities like rangoon and and just i mean china was really hanging in the balance and it could have been a whole different whole different war a whole different post war right if japan had just completely taking over i mean what do you think about that yeah that's pretty wild i mean i think about those guys on that uh, on the road and even the the first schmucks that had to chop down the trees and 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 i mean just you're going through swamps and you know in europe you know the 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 band of brothers you know my great-grandfather's unit the 30th infantry i mean when you're going through Holland, people are handing you glasses of wine as you're liberating their cities, you know, and, and when you're building the Burma road, not only are the Japanese trying to kill you, the jungle is trying to kill you really hard and they're doing a very good job at it. They have a lot of experience <laughs> killing people in the jungles over there. And, you know, if it's not fever killing you in the bog, I mean, I don't even know how you would keep up your morale to keep going. Uh, just everything is bogging down. You're being shot at machinery's breaking down. Replacement parts are weeks away. You have to make do. So you're salvaging from whatever wrecks are along the road. I mean, it's a testament to ingenuity, tenacity, uh, just the people that actually get it, the dire consequences that this has to be kept open. It's just, it's pretty commendable when you think about it. Uh, and I don't think they get very much attention. A lot of it goes to Europe and to the bigger campaigns. But man, 
just that grit. It's so it's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up a good point too. And it was something I was thinking about it from, from Chanel's perspective, right? From the top, you, you understand you've got, you know, what's at risk, you know, what's hanging in the balance, but the everyday guy on the ground, the guys, the, the ground crew, especially the ground crew working, like I said, they're, they're not getting resupplied. They're rebuilding carburetors through the night. Meanwhile, like you said, the jungle's trying to swallow them up. The weather's just atrocious and they're doing everything they can. And yeah, like you said, what's, what are we doing here? Why are right. we doing and that's the real testament to leadership. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Leadership. Testament to leadership. Jocko Willock talks about that all the time. If your troops don't know why you're there, it's just, it's a no-go. You, right. you, Cause it's going to get rough and they have to know why are we doing this? Like, and if there's a reason you'll endure any hardship to, to make it happen. And that's a real testament to the sergeants, to the lieutenants, you know, the captains out there, just most likely out there on the front with the guys leading by example, just, just malaria ridden, uh, just the insects, uh, the boils, right? I mean, all of the infectious skin diseases that you would be rot, just jungle rot. And they just did it. They just did it. And it's just <laughs> history owes so much to people that we're never going to know about. And a lot of those people have never been found. Their remains. I mean, they're just been swallowed up by the jungle and no one will ever know where they are except God, but that's it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I thought it was interesting too, because I didn't, again, I didn't really know a whole lot about this and that almost didn't even happen. Right. I mean, you're, you're just going to grab a bunch of, um, you know, trained pilots at a time where, you know, England is knocking down the door saying, when are you going to get into this war? And, you know, um, oh yeah, by the way, we want to take some of the, some of the best equipment, uh, and not give it to the British, a lot of the lend lease stuff. And we want to use it over here in Burma, you know, with 20 some guys originally. And, uh, we think that we've got a plan <laughs> to, to keep Japan at bay and, you know, it goes all the way to FDR. And of course he has his reservations like, mm, <laughs> do I really want to commit to this? Uh, but Chenault made his case very clear. This is exact. This is, this is what we're going to do. And this is exactly how I'm going to do it. This is the plan that I've got in place. And uh, FDR trusts him so much that he actually asked him to write uh, the president personally as almost like a pen pal. I need updates right from uh, you, right from Chenault. Like I'm, I'm asking you to write to me. I need to know what's going on. I need to know what you guys need. Uh, those needs weren't always met as much as FDR would. Oh yeah, yeah we got you. Of course, everything changes December 7th, 1941. So, um, you know, it's just like I said, it's just fascinating that the whole thing was almost like an experiment to begin with. And Chenault was absolutely right the whole time. Everything he did worked, which is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he didn't have mass desertion from these pilots. They're constantly moving. They're like the flying circus. I mean, they're here, then they're there, then they move over here. The Japanese never knew where, where they were coming from. And it got to the point where they were, the Japanese were so afraid of the flying tigers that these bombing raids for in all these cities in, in, in Burma would stop because, of course, Japanese always listened into the uh, to the frequencies that the pilots were using, and they knew that. So they, I think it was Texil. I think it was his plan. There was like four, four guys that were airborne, right? And they're all just changing their voices 
and it's just all of this fake commotion. It just sounded like there were squadrons of P-40s. All the bombers turned around and went home. Four guys in the air. I mean, that kind of that's stuff, ridiculous. that doesn't happen anymore. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's so wow. great. That's so great. The story. Flying <laughs> tigers, man. So the most famous flying tiger, right? Texas. Yeah, absolutely. You got to meet him. Yeah, I did get to meet him. He was uh, at a symposium. And I knew ahead of time he was going to be there. So uh, I, of course, was geeking out. And um, I went and bought a P-40 uh, model, Flying Tiger model, uh, painted it, got as many pictures as I could to match his aircraft paint scheme. And uh, <laughs> I go to that symposium and uh, I just walk up to him and my hand is shaking and I'm trembling and he looks at me. And uh, he smiles, and I was like, I was wondering, sir, if you'd sign the wing of this aircraft. And he says, Wow, that's the first. Yeah, you know, he, was, he was impressed that I took that initiative, you know, and he signed the, the wing of that aircraft for me. And, uh, you know, of course, I was just like, you know, cloud nine, you know, the whole way home. And uh, what's funny is then a couple years later, it's, I have just bookshelves of World War II books, and there's, I can hear this commotion upstairs. My kids are playing around and screaming and hollering and laughing this and that. All of a sudden it just gets real quiet. Right. And I heard somebody say, dad's going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, Oh no, that's not good. (laughs) So I go up there. Right. And just like kids, they can't help it. They have to stare at what's wrong instead of trying. So I follow their gaze and I'm looking at the, 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 the wreckage of Texas <laughs> aircraft. <laughs> it's in pieces, right? And uh, it looked like it had a hard landing. And I was <laughs> like, oh, man. But anyway. My crew I, had to work through the night to get it airworthy. All <laughs> night. They were at it all night long. <laughs> but uh, we got it all glued back together and... Um, it's you know it's it's in a safe place now but uh, <laughs> that's funny man I, it reminds me i had a very similar story except i was one of the kids so <laughs> my dad built exactly one model airplane as an adult and it was an f4u 1a corsair ira kepford's number 29 right the famous corsair 132nd scale pretty good size wingspan and back in jersey we had a full basement Right. You know, basements were big back there and it was carpeted and everything. That's where the model railroad was. And we had another living room set and dining room set down there. And there was this old antique hutch. I think it was my dad's mom's. Right. My, my grandmother's. And above the hutch, he had a model of an 1873. It was a plastic model of a 73 Winchester. It was one to one scale and it worked, but it was a plastic kit. Right. Well, me and a buddy of mine are down in the basement. Like always, and that's what it was for, right? You're roughhousing, whatever. <laughs> and he throws a ball at me. The ball hits the paneling, which had just enough vibration <laughs> to knock the rifle off of the wall, hits the top of the hutch, comes down, and lands right on that Corsair, breaks the wing off. And I just remember him saying, I got to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was at work at the time, right? He was a cop, and he was... <laughs> Everybody in town knew my dad, right? And they knew he was a tough, he was a tough character. So I'll never forget, as soon as he gets home, I mean, I am just like, I'm trembling, right? And uh, he comes home for his dinner hour and immediately has to take a phone call. So then it's like, 
even longer anticipation longer. The pain. <laughs> and i just i'll never forget my mom is standing in the kitchen she just got done making dinner and she's got one arm out doing this making airplane sound with one arm <laughs> With one arm, oh, mom, you're, kidding. you're killing me. Mom. <laughs> you're killing me. Yeah, uh, got it all fixed. It's sitting on his dresser to this day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, model airplanes and kids sometimes they don't mix. Uh, but that is awesome, you know, to get to meet somebody like Tex Hill. Um, to like you said, to have the forethought to buy it, to uh, you know, build the model, have him sign it. That's really special. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's important that we keep these guys, uh, alive in some way. And, um, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we like to peer into the past. Um, but sometimes we do need to peer a little bit into the future and be prepared for, uh, that thing that all of us World War II buffs hate to talk about, but we know that it's becoming a sad reality a lot sooner than we'd like to. And it's a tough conversation to have, but I'm willing to have it with you, my friend, Dennis, your thoughts, the world after we no longer have a living World War II veteran. Yeah, that's tough, you know, because, you know, all the events that we've gone through um, since World War II, they've always been that kind of a crutch that we leaned on for, courage and for example um korean war vietnam desert storm the berlin wall the facing of the russians the soviets uh china you know everything that we've faced we've always had world war ii veterans there as even in leadership positions even into their elder age and uh we they inspired us they were always there to put their hand on our shoulder and say you know you got this you know and you know, when a guy who was at Tarawa puts his hand on your shoulder and says, you got this, well, you got this, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that is diminishing and right before our eyes. And, you know, that's just reality. We knew it was going to come. Um, you and I are in that age group where we're just, uh, you know, we're the grandsons and the grandchildren. So, you know, we're a little bit more aware of it. Um, the impact that I am most uh, worried about is just for the historical part, um, because, you know, the oral histories are pretty much all been accumulated that are going to be accumulated. And I have to salute. I mean, just think about this, Jeff. All across the country, thousands of people, thousands of people have been, um, let me sorry are you dinging yeah i'm dinging it'll be a dinger not in the middle of the story man can you see me yeah okay yeah um sorry i don't know how to make it stop well we could fix that But it's tough to think about. It is really tough to think about. Um, like you said, they've always been there. Um, they've been our heroes for so long. And they've been there. They, uh, I just, when I think of World War II vets, I still see them 
in their late 60s, early 70s at air shows under the little pop-up canopy that said Tuskegee Airmen or Mighty Eighth or whatever. Do Little Raiders. Do Little Raiders, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, yeah. yeah, but, um, you know, what I was talking about earlier was um, I worry about the history from the oral historian part because and what i was alluding to before was that what really is inspiring to me is that and i don't even know if these people realize the impact they had or what they thought what they were doing at the time i don't i know there's no way they realized how important it was but that 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 school teacher in some small town in minnesota who who just made it a project for his students to find World War II veterans and, and, and interview them. I mean, those ended up in the oral history archives of the Library of Congress. You know, some, some guy who just loves World War II history, he's been a plumber his entire life, he's on a pension, and just on the side, he just decided to do one interview ever, and it was his neighbor in New Jersey. And he recorded it, and it got sent to the Library of Congress, the Oral History Project. You know what I'm saying? It goes on and on and on. And these unnamed people who historians of the future are gonna owe a tremendous debt to for just taking the time just to get those interviews because they're gone. And one of the things that really, uh, when, we, when I was doing The Heart of Hell with Mitch Weiss, uh, letters were an integral part of the book, the manuscript, because the letters have a date, right? So they're time stamped. So then what you can do then is you get the deck log of the ship or you get the history of a unit and you can then create a timeline with that unit's history or with the deck logs of the ships. And then you take the letters that you accumulate from the uh, different guys that were on that ship and you can insert them into the timeline, right? You know that on June 21st, 1944, Lawrence Bozarth was writing his mom and dad in Tulsa, Oklahoma from Saipan. And he said, weather is great, doing some fishing. We went swimming today. And then you look at the deck log and you see aerial attack all day. The Mariana's turkey shoot is on. You know what I mean? It's like, it's tremendous. And that is an encouragement that I want to have for the historians that are still out there, that even though the World War II veterans are almost all gone, their story is still out there because I guarantee you their grandkids, their great grandkids have been given a shoebox. And in that shoebox is about 75 letters that are considered family precious jewels. And all the researcher has to do is track down all the guys from a particular unit and you can do it newspapers.com you can do it on these ancestry.com you can track down people you go on whitepages.com this is a little information as a researcher i don't know a lot of people know you can get cell phone numbers off of whitepages.com for people you track down somebody for instance let's say that you're looking for a family member of a guy who served in burma um and you want to know uh, what if his family has anything from his past, you find his where he died, his obituary. And the obituary is going to list what? Surviving members. And a lot of times it's going to say 
uh, Dennis Blocker of San Antonio, Sarah Blocker Green of Palmer, Alaska, Marnie Blocker uh, of uh, Whitford, Alaska, right? Okay, well, that just gave you three locations to look for family members from an obituary, right? So then you get on whitepages.com and you say, uh, Dennis Blocker, San Antonio, Texas, enter. And there's going to be a cell phone number pop up. Now then you've got to get, you've got to get crafty on how you're going to text somebody, right? Cause you can't sound like you're a creeper or a serial killer. <laughs> how did you get my cell phone number? Right. But that that's, that's how you're going to have to get crafty. Right. And that's going to create, and, or you can just send a letter old school and um, send a letter, introduce yourself, maybe some pictures, maybe a copy, a Xerox copy of, the document that led you to that family. You send that in a letter to them and say, I just want to introduce myself. I'm doing historical research on a book that I'm doing in 2030. Wondering if you have anything from your grandfather or your great grandpa who served in World War II. And they say, yeah, I've got this box of letters. Well, congratulations, you're in the 21st century. You know what they're going to do? They're going to scan them with their phone and you're going to have them within seconds. Whereas I had to drive to their house, <laughs> me and Adam Makos and everybody else had to drive to their house, conjole them into giving us these letters and, and somehow they would give us these letters. And that's another whole conversation about how that somebody like me and Adam and these other uh, Stephen Ambrose and these other guys could convince strain to give these precious documents to strangers to take to Kinko's and to scan. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the future. So it's, it is, it is sad and it is scary. We knew it was coming, but it's not hopeless for future historians because the documentation is out there. It's out there to be found. And that's exactly how you're going to do it. You're going to, you're going to get a hold of them and they're going to say, yes, I do have it. Here's the scans within 30 minutes and it's off to the races man that that is just mind-blowing because that's the kind of stuff that people like me would never think of right like i i totally do not value like i should the oral histories that i i know are out there to sit there and to do the research that you've done i don't see me doing that of course i'm not necessarily a researcher or or looking to publish a book but that is just so eye-opening and um it just it it proves something that i i just keep hammering this point over and over and over in, in combat mail the importance of mail mm -hmm. uh, for so many reasons right for morale um and even if it's yeah you're not going to tell your mom that you were right. just engaged in aerial attacks all day yeah, yeah mom we, they gave us ice cream today it was great um exactly and speaking of mail uh we love to hear from our listeners we love our mail call so be sure uh get on our website wtspwwii.com click on our links get us some mail tell us about it because this this is an interesting point i'd like to make too and i tell my students this all the time uh we get into these very friendly arguments between teacher and students so i always win um but but um you know how this has changed human communication my opinion is the cell phone is the greatest breakthrough in how humans communicate since the phoenician alphabet and i'll tell you why 
Um, you probably, probably, maybe you do, doubt that you have a text message from 20 years ago. I doubt it. You, you, you don't. You don't have it. You don't have a shoebox of emails no. that you sent 25 years ago. I have every letter that was sent to me the entire time I was in Baghdad. I have every piece of mail that I received from my family, friends, this whole community, entire fifth grade classes that sent me stuff and drawings. I have every scrap of mail. Yes, from a morale standpoint, it was the best. That's that's better than ammunition sometimes, right? You need to know what you're fighting for. Um, but for us, especially for guys like Dennis, if this is how we communicate now, if everything's digital and it's just floating around in the air, mm -hmm. it's what tough. is that going to be like trying to capture the next wars, right? How, how are historians... They're, the whitepages.com won't mean anything, right? right? So it's really interesting to think about when we think of the importance of written communication, how there's not necessarily a tactile way that we communicate anymore. We don't have an artifact from our conversation. We don't have a letter. Um, that's That could prove to be quite detrimental in history that's in the future. That's right. You know? Yeah, and... I had the foresight when my dad was in Baghdad. Um, I, I knew as a historian that what the emails that he was sending were historic, right? He, every single one was historic because it had a date. It had a time. And it didn't matter what the content was because I could later stick it into a timeline and it would have relevance because of the timeline and because of the date and because of the time. Because then I could get from actually leaked sources, um, all of the IED explosions in Baghdad, which were thousands, right? So I made a database and I started inserting those into a timeline. And so when I would see that dad was saying that ah, things have been okay today, and then I would see that, well, about two clicks away from him, Northwest, a school bus was bombed. And then uh, guys came out with machine guns and shot all of the responders, right? So this is what dad, the environment that dad was in. So my challenge to anybody out there who is historical minded right now, if you were in Iraq, if you were in Afghanistan, if you were in any of these operations, if you sent emails, you need to back them up. You need to download them. You need to copy paste, take 30 minutes a day, just do 10 a day from back in those days, copy paste them and stick them into a word document. I challenge you to do that because those emails are our version of letters. And so the, the, it, the, for historians of the future, it isn't all bleak because people still do use email. And a lot of the emails were uh, very descriptive um, that some of the folks would send and that I was able to see from different events. Um, but there is something that is also true, and that is, I don't care if you were a school dropout from Alabama, somehow, if you wrote a letter in World War II to your family back home, it was the most beautiful prose. Everything was misspelled, 
right? It was all misspelled. But the sentiment, the way it was written, the sentence structure is absolutely beautiful. And I'm sorry, but historians of the future are going to have to deal with LOL, OMG. I mean, it's not going to translate very well into some some powerful, sweeping epic. <laughs> so that's going to be that's going to be the I uh, do not envy the historians of the future when I try to tell. <laughs> that's that's a fact. That's a fact. And I do want to say that if Henry Sledge is listening, we don't necessarily mean that everybody from Alabama is a high school dropout. That was just Dennis is making a point. No, it was absolutely <laughs> everybody I've ever known that was a dropout was from Alabama. <laughs> We'll let that one go. Here's a way. Here's a way. Here's a fun way that we may not necessarily be always historical when we're doing it, but it's at least keeping um, the legends alive, keeping it interesting for young kids. And that's movies. Movies are never going to not be movies. And what I mean by that is don't come down on a movie because those were not Tiger Tanks. Those were M60s. We know. We know that. We know they weren't real tigers, okay? We got it. Yes, that's a computer-generated Kate torpedo bomber. Of course it is. Because all the other ones that were real were shot out of the sky. It's a movie. But, and there's going to have to be a pretty girl in there. There's got you got to, guys, you got to deal with, you know, there's going to be a little bit of love thing, a little bit of the Pearl Harbor and the Josh Hartnett and the Ben Affleck. Because at least if you take your girl to a movie... She'll be interested for like 10 or 12 seconds. Okay. So it, it's good to expose her to that. Then she go, wow, I didn't even know this was a thing. Exactly. So here, it's, it's good. It's a movie. It's not a documentary. So there's some movies I wanted to talk about with Dennis tonight. And I've watched quite a few because I've just been enjoying loafing this summer. It's been amazing. Getting a lot of work done around the house, having fun, reading a lot of books. It's been great. Yeah, and I provided you with some movies. You really did. You, yeah, you absolutely did. It was a great, that was an incredible birthday present. It just kept coming. I mean, it was amazing. It was just, oh, you have to open this one first. This one says number five. No, 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 don't do number five. Oh, my gosh, it was great. I'm going to sit on Dennis's lap, tell him what I need for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have never seen any of these movies before. I say that out loud, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, because when you hear some of these movies, you're going to be like, Jeff, I thought we were friends. What do you mean you've never seen this before? Flying Leathernecks. Mm -hmm. I Wayne. mean, I grew up watching John Wayne. Love John. him. Never saw Flying Leathernecks. It is the story of John Wayne, Robert Ryan. Robert Ryan, yeah, Robert Ryan. Robert Ryan plays his executive officer, and... You know, if you get on IMDb, it's like the most anemic overview of a movie, right? Uh, Major Kirby leads the Grumman, you know, fighters in the, the Battle of Guadalcanal. Okay. No. Yes, that's kind of what happens. But let me tell you, how, this is such a great film on what you talked about earlier, and that was leadership. Mm -hmm. John Wayne's role, that Major Kirby, um, takes over a squadron. That Robert Ryan, the squadron commander, was killed. Robert Ryan was his XO, and he was not recommended to take over the squadron, which is not a normal thing, right? That's what your number two man's all about. That's why he's your XO. John Wayne comes in, like, hey, you going to be bitter about this? No, I guess not. Okay, we got work to do. Uh, so they get along well at first. Then there's a little bit of a breakdown. 
because Robert Ryan's more of the human character, a little bit more affected when these guys are shot down because he's, of course, he's been with them longer, right? He's been flying with them. Um, John Wayne's just, he's John Wayne. He's not going <laughs> to, it's John Wayne. He's, <laughs> he's sucking it up and he's driving on, right? He's continuing the mission. Um, and of course, that has to have a climax where these two are just about to throw fists. Um, but by the end of the film, Robert Ryan sees why John Wayne is the way he is and why that made him such a good leader and why Robert Ryan was not ever going to be a squadron commander until he understood that. And it reminded me of a dynamic from another John Wayne World War II film, Sands of Iwo Jima. Right? If you remember John Agar's character, you know, oh, you know, he's a rough and tough sergeant, whatever, you know, like, I'm, I'm, he see, he sees things pragmatically and he's going to look at things from a democratic perspective and he's going to read to his children when he gets, you know, all these, it's great. That's, that's great. John Wayne's just going to like, I'm going to make sure we get the job done and try to survive this war. And same thing, right? There's this little back and forth. They don't like each other. The longer John Agar's character spends around John Wayne's character, the more he starts to see he was an outstanding leader. Um, so Flying Leathernecks. Dennis, have you seen it? I have seen it. It's, of course it's, you have. Yeah. No. In yeah. Iceland, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably in Iceland. Uh, yeah, I, I love that movie. Um, specifically, uh, Robert Ryan's portrayal i mean he i don't know if he was nominated or not for anything for that role but he definitely he owned it and it was just visceral and gut punch it was tremendous yeah of course john wayne like you said is john wayne you know he's gonna do his thing but man it was yeah tremendous yeah it was well done and and i want to say it came out in like 50 50 or 51 somewhere in there uh, so it's a color film, mm-hmm. so you'll 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 like that, folks. If you've never seen Flying Leathernecks, I, I recommend it. Don't come back to us in mail call and say, "Well, that's dumb." They're flying Hellcats in the Battle of Guadalcanal on August of forty-two. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Okay, <laughs> that's how it had to be. And and if you love Hellcats like I do, you're going to overlook that the historical discrepancy, and you're just going to sit back and enjoy some really good color footage of Hellcats. Yeah. And you're really going to be treated at the end of the film because then he takes over a Corsair squadron mm-hmm. and the color footage of the Corsairs. So and of course, the ones, I mean, you yeah. can tell when it's the same, it's the Corsairs hitting the the uh, the cliffs at Paleloo, right? The combat, the actual combat footage, like you, yeah. you know that part, right? Uh, but it's great, great aerial footage. John Wayne's great, Robert Ryan's great, Flying Leathernecks. Yeah, the, the 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 color is just it's that awesome 1950s just like technicolor uh where it was just super rich. You know, in the 70s it kind of got bleached out for some reason. They thought that was a great idea in the 70s to do that to all the color. Yeah. And uh but man it's just yeah, like you said, you know, it's it's just great. You have to you have to give them some license, right? Like you said. But yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know, Sands of Iwo Jima, where John Wayne gets shot in the back. Um, you know, Sergeant Stryker. You know, that was that was great too. I enjoyed that one. One of my all-time faves. So yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of parts of that reminded me of Gung Ho with Randolph Scott. 
Yeah. Um, which was another tremendously, uh, I think a really unrecognized movie, but it was really got into like hand-to-hand combat and uh, was it Carlson's Raiders, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Make an Island Assault. That was just, that was so good too. Yeah, no, that, that was a great wartime film. And that's actually the next, we're going to stick with the John Wayne theme for a minute. Uh, the next wartime production I wanted to talk about was Flying Tigers. Again, a film I had never seen. Um, I thought it was outstanding, considering I think it came out, and I'm trying to find it here. I think it was 43, I want to say. So wartime production, you're not going to enjoy that 1950s Technicolor. um, But uh, it was just, I guess... What I liked about it was that was a little bit more, how can I put this? Maybe a little bit of a grittier film. Mm-hmm. Um, not the typical John Wayne, uh, you know, happy ending, you know, kind of thing. Um, really seemed to really, and I think probably why, is why this film came out, right? It came out in 43, the, so this is like a year after this stuff was going on or maybe late 42, 42, something like that. But um, the fact that it came out so quickly after this was a current event was impressive in itself. And of course, you're yeah. going to put it in the lane uh, to get people to go see it. So it really seemed like this was the type of movie that they really needed to show. They really wanted to tell the story of what these guys were up against. You see that... Um, the fatigue you see the lack of morale um well you, you felt see like the, you were there What's you, that? Actually felt, you actually felt like you were there like they took you there like you didn't yeah. feel like a sound stage it didn't feel like some kind of uh props everywhere like you felt that you felt the uh the danger of the jungle the night you felt the isolation of their outposts like parts were not coming in like help is not coming you have to make do with what you have and you actually as the as a viewer you act you felt you felt it like i i felt like i was freaking out there and (laughs) was like i need a xanax it's like oh my god (laughs) i mean just having having automobiles turn headlights on to light up the runway so they can land and take off you know is there flying their air patrols through the night. And I really appreciate the dynamic of these guys, not necessarily being a cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. This wasn't like, Oh, I got your six, man. Oh yeah. No, like, no, no, no. And they had this one character that he's there just for himself. Right. He was there because it was a $500 bounty for smoking a, a Japanese uh, enemy aircraft, 500 a piece. And, you know, here's a check from, from Shanghai Shek. He's going to give every American flyer $500 for every aircraft that he downs. So it was a business for some of these guys. It was a business. So it was a neat dynamic to show how these guys are kind of coming in and they're like, I don't don't need to know who you are. I don't care who you are. You're going to, you die tomorrow. No sweat off my night. Like I'm here for 500 bucks a pop, you know? So yeah, you know, that was really part of the, do you know, there was flyers like that. They weren't all, not everybody can be Tex Hill. Right. Like they can't all be Texel. So that part I thought was really cool. That that <laughs> dynamic of not this 
great cohesive fighting unit. Um, you know, just guys just kind of looking out for themselves and trying to flame as many chaps as possible and and cashing yeah. that check. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have to wonder about that kind of uh that kind of grit and tenacity that like that would convince you to just go to the opposite side of the globe and not know the language, not know where you're at, not know how to get home. If you wanted to go home, how are you getting home? Like you're right. not getting home unless someone else arranges it. Like you're there. So and remote, so out there. Golly. Yeah. What's that kind of toughness? To just say, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. Let's go out there and shoot down some Japanese planes. Right. And uh, man, that's <laughs> that's it's pretty remarkable. This guy's yeah. had that courage and grit. So fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you know, we talked some wartime films from early '50s. So watched one today, and you, I, I know your eyebrows are going to raise <laughs> when I tell you this. You've never, I've never seen this movie before till today. I'm part of the club. Uh, let's shift over to the Mediterranean. And, you know, I thought of this the other day. Um, you know, folks, I got a text from, from Dennis here that said, man, Mare Nostrum gets me every time. Our Sea, right? That's what that means in Italian. That is the song from the Victory at Sea soundtrack. Um, one of the better, yeah, one of the better songs. And, mm -hmm. uh, when you sent that, it just kind of got my gears turning and, man, you know, like, I would love to know more about the Mediterranean. I really want to know about Anzio. I want to know about Monte Cassino. I want to know about, um, you know, since I'll be uh, visiting Greece next summer, I want to know the World War II aspect of Greece, right? I know, yeah, we get it's the birthplace of democracy and all that great stuff 2,000 years ago, but I want to know the significance of Greece and the Aegean. And this film um, may not have been accurate at all <laughs> it was a great film and it starred uh one of my favorite people uh from that era of of film gregory peck trying to give you some hints <laughs> mm -hmm. gregory peck the aegean sea the guns of navarone oh, okay yeah i mean that's probably an amazing book I know, I know it was adapted uh, from a book. I have no idea. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that was all made up and fictitious. <laughs> okay. Like I really don't think none of this was, was true. Maybe so. Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. I didn't look into it. I don't, <laughs> I feel like that was just kind of made up story. That ain't a great film. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I love Gregory Peck. I love Anthony Quinn, man. Anthony Quinn, yeah. man. He played a great role, David Nivens, in it, of course. Um, Dennis, have you seen The Guns of Navarro? Yes. Of course you have. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a, uh, a collection of over 200 World War II movies that I'd seen. And uh, uh, and then I had the joy of um, having all of those stolen by somebody. But uh, yeah, so that was definitely one of the ones that I saw. Um, it's not it's not one that I would play again and again. Uh, it's interesting and it's uh, it's like you said though, because in my mind I'm like, eh, I don't think this happened. 
<laughs> I mean, maybe it did. I don't know. I didn't look into it further than that. But uh, it, it was entertaining, you know. I thought so. I mean, it was it was kind of a lengthy movie. It's kind of like Where Eagles Dare, right? Like, you don't watch it from a World War II specific historical perspective. But I think it's 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 good fun. Um, I love seeing the American uh, like three quarter ton weapons carriers and M8 Greyhounds painted in German paint schemes. <laughs> um, if you like Stukas, there's a, there's a really good shot of a couple Stukas coming in right when they're strafing. Um, but whatever, it is what it is. But what scale uh, were they? One seventy two or what were they? The Stukas, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Got yeah. kind of them on the screen. models. Marionette Stukas. But again, it's a it's an interesting story about leadership, right? Gregory Peck's character. He's got an impossible mission in front of him. He's got people from all over. They're again not a cohesive unit. These guys are just. One guy was the. Um, Oh, uh, what did they call him? The butcher of ba Barcelona. He was in the the Spanish Civil War in the 30s, right? And it's just these cold hard killers and these you know elite guys from the uh, British you know units. And then you got Gregory Peck, who you don't really catch his backstory, but he gets called in. He's a soldier of some sort, but he gets called in, I guess, because he's got some expertise in in climbing these cliffs. And on the island of Navarone, this was the only way that they could kind of, uh, there's the only way they could land that the Germans didn't pay any attention. It was like a 400 foot sheer cliff. Germans don't need to protect it. And who can, who can land there? So they have this impossible mission to get on this little sailing boat through the Aegean and get through all the German patrol boats and everything else and fool them and speak all these different languages to do it. Um, and I won't tell you if they succeeded or not. It doesn't really matter. But it's a good story. Like I said, Gregory Peck, probably, I, I'll be honest, if Gregory Peck was not in it, ah, I don't know. Like you said, it's not one you go back to. It's not one you put on every Christmas. Like, oh, yeah, Guns and Everyone. <laughs> but a neat story, nonetheless, of of leadership. And, I mean, Gregory Peck, who, who I mean, who better? Yeah. yeah he, he makes a watchable film. Definitely carried that on his shoulders. Yeah. Of course, his greatest uh, 12 o'clock high, you know, it's just, of course. just amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that to me, that that made him for me. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's about that time in our show. Um, Dennis, what you reading? <laughs> I'm reading a book about um, this gentleman who has climbed all the peaks was like seven peaks or the tallest peaks in the world. And, uh, it's uh, pretty interesting his, uh, because you, he, you get to follow him when he's just starting out. And, um, usually I'm into world war two books. Um, but I do deviate from time to time into Shackleton and the Antarctic or the Arctic and Antarctic and, um, which we've, had some very good conversations on your porch about uh, that story comes with a little added and whiskey and yeah so good but uh anyway about this you know this this fella you know and he's very candid which i appreciate 
about his uh, mistakes that he should have died from and uh, <laughs> mistakes that other people did die from that he learned from their mistake. And uh, I don't know, I just always am gripped by, and, and honestly, Jeff, I have people recommend books to me all the time that are uh, non, that are uh, fiction. And uh, I don't have time for fiction. I don't, because there's just so many tremendous things that have really happened that people have endured and overcome. And I'd just rather read about something that, you know, actually happened. <laughs> no, but, uh, I, I get yeah, nothing against those, you know, the, the fiction. And I mean, I appreciate Lord of the Rings and, you know, I appreciate the Hobbit series and all that, but um, love the movies, of course. But, you know, I'm, if I'm going to devote half of my life to reading, um, I'm not going to read Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm going to read, you know, Band of Brothers. I'm going to read With the Old Breed. I'm going to read some book that, some World War II guy, his granddaughter published for him that sold at a garage sale. Like, I'm going to read that, you know, and um, put that proudly on my bookshelf, which then becomes resource material for writing as of my own, right? So, yeah, I don't have time for anything else. No, that's that's a good point. And, and it took me a while to kind of, I grew up reading fiction. I grew up reading Louis L'Amour. Uh, I probably read 50 Louis L'Amour books when I was in Baghdad. I, I now have probably every novel that he ever did. Right. And, um, but a, as I got older and I did transition, uh, to really trying to strictly read World War II, and of course I veered, I've talked about on the show before World War One really kind of has caught my attention lately, you know, especially the air war in that first world war. Um, I gotta admit, I enjoy my Hemingway. I love, I love my Hemingway, but it does give you an appreciation. Uh, I think it makes you a better reader, in, in my opinion, to read not just, you know, something like from McManus or Ian Toll, where you're just like, my eyes are bleeding. This is so much data. Jonathan Partial, thank yeah. you for Shattered Sword. I know so many things about the Battle of Midway now. Um, but... Um, it, it, I feel like it kind of opens you up. It, it expands your vocabulary. It, and when you do write like you do, it you know should be able to help you find your style. Um, mm -hmm. So Absolutely. the uh, the two books I want to talk about real quick. And like I said, I, I mentioned one earlier, and I've been kind of holding off to really get into the the nuts and bolts of it. But pulled this one off the shelf: the Flying Tigers, John Tolan. This it looks like it's brand new. It looks like it had never been cracked open, but this book is from 1963. Wow. Uh, so smells good, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the Flying Tigers, for uh, for somebody like me who had – are you snickering at me smelling my book? <laughs> I saw, I saw Don't give me a Kindle. I'm oh, I'm just it. laughing because I uh, not – Three hours ago, did the same thing to a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling inside when it, when it had that old library smell to it. <laughs> right. There's a reason for that. It's history. Ah. Anyway, <laughs> history has a smell. It's a distinct smell. <laughs> anyway, if you're like me and you don't know Jack Diddley Squad about the Flying Tigers, this was a great introductory book. It's, it's a quick read. 
there's a lot of uh, pictures that are in, in this particular public. I don't even know if this book's still in print, right? I have no idea. I don't know if you can go to Amazon and get John Tolan's Flying Tigers from, yeah. I, I don't know. But if you're interested, it's a good, like I said, it's a good overview. You get a lot of good stuff on Chenault. You get, uh, you don't get into all of the really gory data and statistics you just read about these guys and it's great you just strap into the cockpit in a p40 and you're flying after a hamp or a nate or an oscar and you're just getting with it so great book um about something that's real right and then something that's a little bit of both uh i finished flying tiger so quick i was not prepared to pick my next book and dennis knows that's a process guys i mean that's you, you know, for readers like us, there's times I sit, I'm sitting here, I'm in my study, got my coffee and my WTSP mug that you can get on WTSPWW.ii.com. <laughs> Go to our website, look at our merch, get you a t-shirt, get you a coffee cup, make you a cup of coffee and sit in your room, sit in your study, in your library. And you're like, okay, what do I want to, what am I feeling? Right. And sometimes the weather has something to do with it. Right. I don't want to read about the Africa Corps. If it's 30 degrees outside. Okay. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to watch the Pacific in the winter. I'm not going to watch Band of Brothers in the summer. I can't. I can't get into Bastone and Foy when it's 106 in Texas. Okay. I can't do it. But so I'm sitting here. Like I said, I finished this book way too quick. And I didn't even know I had this book. Right. People dump books off with me all the time. I didn't even know I had it. It's called Silver Wings. No, it's not an old country song. It's about the Army Air Forces in World War II, right? Now you got that song in your head. It's okay. Um, again, I don't think this book had ever been cracked open, but this is from 1948. So it's a, it's a really cool artifact in itself. And the reason I say that it's a little bit of both, uh, fiction and nonfiction, is the way that this book is written, the way the stories are told, each chapter is about a different exploit from a different air force. Okay. So from the eighth, the ninth, the 10th, 12th, 14th, all of that, each chapter is a different exploit. And they'll tell you, they, they come out in the very beginning and they tell you that uh, the people who narrate the stories are fictitious, but the stories and the people involved in them are real. So you get this really, um, easy reading they really draw you in i'm only on the first chapter and, and you're following this this army major this this doctor in the rain you, you, you're in this car you're in the staff car it's raining you're you're in the car with the driver corporal i think or a sergeant and he's waiting for this officer to come out and it's at night and it's raining and the officer comes out and he's shrugging on his overcoat and, you know, just those details of the driver about to get out to open the door and the officer, as he's passing through the headlights, waves him off to stay in the car. You know, I can open my own door kind of thing and scoots in the back seat, lights a cigarette and tells him where to go. And he again, these are the fictitious characters, but they're telling a story. He wants to eat. This doctor is at he's at the end of everything he knows from the medical profession, trying to save a 23 year old aviator a B-24 waste gunner. And he, this this kid is withering away. So he goes to this place where these guys, this is actually, you find out this is right after the war is over. This is like November of 45. And these guys are ready to go home. They're out processing. They're shooting pool. They're living it up. They're telling their war stories. And he walks into this room, shrugs off his, 
his overcoat and he goes over, finds the highest ranking guy in the room, says, I, I need your help. I need all of these guys in this room. I need their help. And he tells a story of this waste gunner who was in a B-24 in the Pacific and they get shot down and they have enough time to hit the bailout button and the whole crew gets out and his buddy, the other waste gunner, reaches down and pulls up his parachute and looks at it and it's shot to shreds. So as they're kind of lightening the load, trying to see if they could belly land or what, he just kind of smiles and shucks it out the window. Well, then it comes to the point where, okay, the wing has caught fire. There's a lot of fuel left. This plane's about to go. Everybody needs to get out right now. Everybody's out except for these two waste gunners as this plane is going down and there's one parachute between them. And they're not arguing for who wants the parachute. They're arguing because the other guy should take the parachute. They're trying to save each other's lives to the point that he finally knocks this guy out, punches him, gives him the chute, throws it on him, and kicks him out of the airplane. Only that chute also was shot to shreds. And he watches his friend that he tried to save plummet to the earth. And it's his fault. And he goes down with this B-24 in flames. It crashes in the water. But they, he, he, of course, obviously he lives. And they bring him back. And he's paraplegic. And this army major doctor is telling this story to this group of guys saying the only thing that's going to save him is he needs to know that he lived for a reason. He needs to know that he did not kill his best friend by doing what he did he did everything to try to save his life this guy is a hero more than i've ever seen one but he thinks that he should just die because of what he did so he said i need you guys who have fought have seen this stuff seen your buddy shot down i need you to come to the hospital with me right now and tell this man that he needs to live because if he doesn't he's gonna rot he's only got a few days left he, he's not if he, he's got to want to live to recuperate from paraplegia so it's just a really neat way when you when you mix fiction in uh to to really tell these stories I, i've never read a book like this where they do that where they add this fictional character to tell a non-fictional thing it's it's great it's great hap arnold does the uh the intro to it again it's 1948 and this is, I mean, it's dedicated to the boys that wore the silver wings, what it meant to be an aviator uh, and what it meant to come home victorious from World War II. So, wow. Silver wings. Cool. Again, probably not in print. Yeah, and it existed. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, Dennis, you have any plugs you want to share some of your projects or can you share any of your projects, some of the stuff you've got going on? I know you're going to see a really, really good friend of yours soon in like a week. Yeah. In about a couple of days, I'll be seeing a really good friend of mine uh, uh, up in North or North Texas there, Jeff Copsetta. And uh, looking forward to spending some time with uh, him and his wife, Tammy. And yeah, should be good. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to link up before um before you get to my house yeah i wouldn't say i'm north texas right i'd like to think i'm central but people in san antonio they're a little weird they you know <laughs> um but uh let me see okay um we're gonna link up at stinson airfield 
this coming Saturday. So, folks, if you're in the area or if you're in the San Antonio area or you got nothing else better to do because you're a teacher, you don't work all summer, you're going to buy a plane ticket, you're going to fly to San Antonio, see some World War II airplanes, and uh, yours truly uh, in uniform, I'll have a table display there. Uh, and I'm going to bring this setup. I'm going to bring the podcast setup because you never know who's going to be there because I've been listening to my friend Dennis talking all night. And by golly, if there is a World War II vet there, I'm going to sit him down. We're going to turn the camera on. We're going to put the microphone in front of him and we're going to stream it live for what's the scuttlebutt on, on YouTube on Saturday because it has to be done. Mm -hmm. It has to be done. Yeah. Uh, so looking forward to the open house. There's a great invite from a buddy of mine uh, who was an F-16 fighter pilot. We may even just throw him on the show because he's an F-16 fighter pilot. His handle is Bones. <laughs> he's a really cool guy. I think you'd like to hear from him. Um, I've got that. And then the following week, again, I'll probably do some live streaming for our listeners uh, or those who like to watch us on YouTube. I'm going to the USS Lexington uh, down on the coast here in Texas. Uh, I usually visit that area at least once a year in the summer. We go down to Port Aransas and right there in Corpus Christi Bay is the USS Lexington, the second Lexington, of course, not the one that was sunk at Coral Sea. This is um, the one who... Uh, this is, I guess, the, what was it, 16 was the ship's number, um, CV-16. Uh, that first cell action at the Battle of Tarawa in World War II. So it sits out there, and it's just an amazing display. You come in on the hangar deck, you see the Dauntless, you see an Avenger, you see there's a 40 movie experience, you see some of the um, compartments that actually some of the uh, scenes from the Pearl Harbor movie were mm -hmm. filmed there. Uh, on the Lex. I think the uh, the Doolittle portion of it was filmed on the Lexington. So yeah, you get to see that. You go up on the flight deck, you see World War II aircraft all the way through Vietnam, F-14s, things like that. So uh, looking forward to doing that, maybe linking up with somebody that, that works at the Lex to see if maybe they would like to come on the show as well. So looking forward to that. So again, folks, if you're in the area, come on by San Antonio, July 15th at Stinson Airfield, see some World War II aircraft. And Dennis, I think if that uh, if you don't have anything else, I think that'll that'll wrap up the show. Thanks so much for being my wingman again. We really hope Don. Wait, thank you for the opportunity. Enjoy yeah, it. yeah. We we uh, we hope Don the best, and he gets well soon, finds a cure for whatever the heck it is that he's got. And uh, for all of us here at What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, I'm Jeff Copsetton. For Dennis Blocker, we will talk to you next time. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>